me start and uh, finish this first chapter on retrospective from the night studio. And we left off with Musa Mayer writing about her father, thinking of him as a, a high school dropout. telling us that she was always such a good girl and then loving that at the end she found out that he actually as rebellious as he was he was able to get this honorary doctorate (laughs) an ultimate vindication can't sleep tonight so I decided it's late but I'm gonna read anyway to sort of get me ready to rest so we continue on in 1930 my father was awarded a year's scholarship to Otis Art Institute in Los Angeles It was there that he first met a beautiful young art student named Musa McKim. Musa McKim, whom whom he was later to marry. A small, soft-spoken woman. My mother was 22 when they met. My father was 17. Having spent most of her girlhood in Panama, where her father worked as a civil servant in the Canal Zone, she had followed her sister Josephine to Los Angeles, where she planned to study to become a painter. There was always something about Janie that was irresistible, my Aunt Jo says. Janie is her middle name. My mother was named after my grandmother, Musa Hunter. She didn't have to lift an eyebrow, smile, or anything. The men just flocked to her. Janie had all kinds of proposals. I've never seen anybody so effortlessly reap such a benefit. After picking her up at the boat in San Pedro, Joe took her sister, who was very reluctant to see a fortune teller in Hollywood. You've come a long way over a large body of water, said the the psychic said. You think it is to study, but it is not. You've come to meet the man you will marry. My mother was furious. (laughs) Hmm. Philip fared no better at Otis than he had at Manual Arts. The curriculum was strict and traditional. Only in the second year were students permitted to draw from the model. The first year, they were to draw only from the cast, only from casts. On one occasion, my mother remembers, Philip piled up every plaster cast he could find in one big mound and began to draw them. He and a new friend, Reuben Kadish, or Kadish, would sneak into the life drawing classes without permission. They set up a small studio of their own in an unused space behind the school locker room. My father was becoming increasingly discouraged at the pedantry of the instruction. There I was, he said later, 
thinking about Michelangelo and Picasso, and I had to study anatomy and build clay models of torsos. After a warning from a faculty member, the two young men were called into the dean's office office, and told they didn't belong there. The faculty member who had warned them was sculptor George Stanley, designer of the Oscar and the elephant symbol of the Republican Party. That gives you some idea of the kind of art that surrounded us in Hollywood, Reuben Kiddish points out. My father determined to teach himself. At Otis, my mother had been impressed by the handsome young painter's intensity, although she found him a bit ungainly and very unlike the men she was used to. But Philip was just a boy then, she says. A sophisticated older man. Oh, sorry. A sophisticated older man, a French writer in his 30s who'd come up on the boat with her father for a visit to California soon captured her attention. In the daytime, Philip worked briefly as stock boy in his brother Irving's fur business, drove a delivery truck for a dry cleaning store, and worked a machine that punched numbers on vests. He drew the line, however, at his sister-in-law B's attempts to find work for him as an artist at Walt Disney Studios or at an advertising agency. Excuse me. Sometimes my father was able to get hired as an extra at the movie studios. In in a 1931 John Barrymore film, Trilby, he appeared in the background as a young painter, complete with beard and beret. I stormed the the Bastille, participated in the fall of Babylon, my father recalled later. These early experiences fed a lifelong interest in film, as well as an obvious flair for the dramatic in his bearing and his talk. Through Reuben Kedish, Philip met Los Angeles artist Lorser Feidelson and began to frequent his studio. Feidelson introduced them to Arnsberg Collection of Modern European Art, now at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, where he first saw the paintings of Giorgio de Cherico. The soothsayer's recompense, painted in 1913, the year of my father's birth, was in that collection. With its mysterious arcade and stopped clock, its deserted piazza slashed by her harsh shadows. Sorry, I had to stop my glasses. Okay, deserted piazza with slashed by harsh shadows and its forever departing train. <sighs> the world of this Desherco painting hovers in a terrible silence caught between enigma and clarity. But it was later Desherico in the coll- but it was a later Desherico in the collection, the poet and his muse, copyright 1925, that haunted my father, for he spoke of it often, and quoted its ambiguous interior in his la- in his last paintings. The 
the floor's wide boards, the open door, the mute torment of the faceless mannequins. At night, Philip pored over borrowed art books, particularly those that contained reproductions of the Renaissance masters, the majesty and otherworldly stillness of the work of the Italian quattrocentro painter Piero della Francesca, in particular, fascinated him. I'm still not able to find a really good position to do this. They don't demand love, Philip said, of the mysterious fascination that Piero del Francesca and Giorgio de Chirico still had for him almost 50 years later. They stand and hold you off. During this time, Philip painted and drew constantly, avidly. My mother still has some of his finely detailed and mottled colored pencil copies of Musk. Masaccio and Michelangelo frescoes. Mother and child, a mass of stylized maternal presence in a Decherico-like landscape, was painted. Was painted over the course of that year, 1930. My father was fond of this picture all his life. Hmm. He was proud enough of this precocious work to show it 50 years later in his retrospective. I painted this when I was only 17, he would say, in a closet with Dutch boy house paints. It was through a photographer friend, Leonard Stark, that Philip met the photographer, Edward Weston, who who took my father's photograph. It is a striking portrait, revealing an intense young man, mature beyond his years, staring directly at the camera with dark, brooding eyes. See the front of the jacket photograph. (laughs) The front of the jacket photograph on my book is a drawing. Interestingly. Let's see here. Where was I? A few years later, Feidelson severed his connection with the young painters, tagging them as communist sympathizers. Ruben Kadish despised him for the public red-baiting tactics he used on his weekly radio program. Lorster anticipated McCarthy by years, Kadish would say, or Kadish. But my father never denounced his mentor. Feidelson showed me Piero della Francesca for the first time, he said, by the way of explanation. He opened up the Renaissance for me. By this time, Philip was living with his mother, the only son still at home, in an apartment near hotel near Venice, California. Now a tawdry beach scene of sidewalk performers and skateboarders of drug dealers and beach bums, Venice was then a quiet, run-down community, but with a freedom to it, a relaxation of social mores, 
mores that beach towns often have. My cousin Fan's husband, Irving, offers to drive us out to Ocean Beach near Venice for a look. We stop to watch a limbo dancer who says he will walk on broken glass, but don't stay to see if he actually does. Excuse me. Wow. Mm. After some searching, some strolling up and down the cement walkway along the sand, we find the white brick apartment building Rachel and her son lived in, an unremarkable plane. I feel a vague sense of disappointment. What is it I expected to see? With her children grown, Rachel no longer kept a kosher home. And by the standards of the day, her her behavior was not at all fitting for an elderly widow. Or, so said, the neighborhood gossips. In her 50s by this time, Rachel still loved to dance and didn't mind asking the younger men or taking on an occasional drink or smoke. Every week, this tiny, energetic woman would climb on the streetcar with her shopping bags to visit her children. Come, she'd say. Let's have, let's go have a dance. Let's have a dip in the ocean. Rachel encouraged her younger son's independence, was proud of his growing talents. She approved of everything he did, my cousin Fan tells me. In a snapshot taken on the beach around this time, Philip sits on the shoulders of his brother Nat, who was by then playing in his own jazz band. Both brothers were tall and good-looking, sharp dressers, popular with girls. Um, One evening, parked on a side street near Hollywood Boulevard, Nat crossed behind his car, perhaps to open the door for his date. They'd been out to the theater and were going dancing. But the brake wasn't set, and the car rolled down the slope, crushing his legs. Hospitalized and in terrible pain, Nat died of gangrene. Although my father was not to leave Los Angeles permanently until 1935, and though he continued now and again, oh, excuse me, now and again to live with his mother until then, he always spoke of leaving home at 17, which must have been close to the time of Nat's death. Whether it was the second awful shock or Philip's increasing involvement with the world of radical politics and art that ultimately provided the springboard he needed to separate himself from his family, it's quite clear that after he left Los Angeles for New York, the break became all but complete. There were, a, there were a few visits, but they were very few. Rachel brought her new husband to St. Louis once in the mid-40s when my father was teaching at Washington University. It was the one time I met my grandmother, but I have no memory of seeing her. Philip went back to Los Angeles for a funeral in 1949, and for his sister Jenny's funeral ten years later, Apart from these visits and occasional letters from Fan and from Harry or Irving, my father did not keep in touch. 
1933, my father was given his first exhibition at the Stanley Rose Gallery in a bookstore in Hollywood that had become a gathering place for artists and intellectuals. Painter Herman Sherry, who organized the show, remembers that Philip needed needing some pocket money sold an important early work to Stanley Rose, owner of the bookstore, for $25. Only a photograph oh, only a photograph remains of the painting. Conspirators. Photograph remains of the painting Conspirators, a powerful image of Ku Klux Klan members plotting with whips and ropes and a waiting wooden cross. The painting is still lost. Forty years later, when he was again painting Klansmen, my father was unable to track it down. Philip always wore a necktie, Cherry recalls. He was natally dressed and not like an artist. Making $40 a week working for his brothers, he was considered very rich. The rest of us were all starving to death. That was always true, you know. Later during the WPA and the 40s, he made a lot of money. Phil had an early career. Made a big name for himself. He looks at me, cocking his head, a wry smile on his face. Your dad always had a little of the bourgeois in him. At first, my reaction is defensive. My father bourgeois? Certainly not. I'm not certainly. Surely not. <laughs> no, this, this is mere envy, distaste on the part of one painter for another's early successes. I think I recognize that old perverse logic. Aesthetic virtue can be fashioned from priva privation just as it is from, yeah, just as it is from rebellion. It softens failure. Money corrupts, and those who succeed are the sellouts. But that's too easy. Haven't I just been listening as my cousin Fan talks about working day and night with her parents? in their dry goods store? Haven't I been hearing about Irving's successful fur business, long hours, hard work, complete dedication? The stakes are different, certainly. There were solid These were solid conservative, upwardly mobile merchants and businessmen, bourgeois. But they, they must have left some mark on my father. Forged in the old smithy of New, of New World Opportunity that was California during the 20s and 30s, the family dreams can only have been sharpened by a father's failure and suicide, a brother's tragic death. Perhaps this was the edge that honed in Philip and his surviving brothers some profound need to make something of themselves, no matter what the cost.
But whatever its genesis, it was in these boys, it was in these boyhood years that my father formed a demanding and enduring image of what an artist should be. His biographer and friend, Dora Ashton, describes his early credo. An artist works, an artist worked assiduously, learned the entire history of his art, experimented, and above all, aspired to greatness. This romantic aspiration was evident to all who knew Guston during his late adolescence. Tall, slender, with a serious mane, he already carried himself like an artist. His energies were, mis- were marshaled and he knew his direction. America was deep in the depression by then. Philip's work had already brought him in contact with strikes and brutal labor conditions. He heard stories of union busting and use of goon squads reportedly by the American Legion and the Ku Klux Klan. By the early 30s, the social and intellectual climate in the arts had begun to alter dramatically. A bunch of pictures I have to go through to get to the next page. I'll have to come back to look at these. Dramatically from the apolitical high style of the 1920s. Communism was in the air. The revolutionary spirit and imagery of Diego Rivera, David Alfaro, Siqueiros, and Jose Clemente Orozco three muralists who had led the renaissance of Mexican painting during the 1920s was very strong in California and was perhaps the most decisive influence on New Deal art in the years to come. Yeah, I've seen all of those works and I mean, uh, not all of them, but I mean, I've seen uh, quite towered murals in there and different murals around. California. Let's see. To the Mexican painters, the mural was a people's art, accessible to all, a secular extension of Giotto and Masaccio. The Marxist philosophy of the John Reed Club, a branch of which had newly opened in Los Angeles, which urged artists to abandon decisively the treacherous illusion that art can exist for art's sake, interested my father greatly. With his friend from with his friend from Otis, Reuben Kaddish, Philip painted portable murals for the walls of the club on the plight of the, Ameri- of the American Negro, specifically the famous case of the Scottsboro Boys. On one occasion, the so-called Red Squad of the L.A. Oh, sorry. On one occasion, the so-called Red Sco- Squad of the L.A. Police Department broke into the club and shot out the eyes and genitals of the Klansmen. The same year, the the National 
Legion of Decency was formed to rid Hollywood of its leftist influences. Together with Reuben Kaddish and a poet friend, Jules Langsner, my father went to Mexico in 1934 to see the work of the muralists. Originally, my father wrote later, Reuben and I wanted to go to Italy to see the old frescoes firsthand. Reuben and I wanted to go to Italy, Italy, to see and found wanted to go to Italy to see I think I'm rereading the same line, sorry I'm getting tired, that's good <laughs> okay, to see the old frescoes firsthand. it was when we went to the San, San Pedro docks and found out how much it cost to go to Europe on a merchant ship or even on a tanker that we decided that above all, we wanted to get out of Los Angeles. The only possibility within our means was to go to Mexico. What are you doing? You're getting a little bit of the second wind? The trip did not begin suspiciously. Sorry, that's not the right word. The trip did not begin auspiciously. Somewhere in Texas, Langsner fell asleep at the wheel. Their car was wrecked, and my father's knee was injured. By the time they arrived in Mexico City, they were broke. True to his promise to Kaddish, who had written the muralist before they left, Excuse me. Securos helped secure the two painters a wall of their own. The enormous space, a 1,000... 24 square foot wall in Maximilian's former summer place, summer palace in Morelia, was given to them on the condition that they finish it in six months. Working in true fresco style, completing large sections on wet plaster each day, the huge 40 foot high mural depicts the first, the struggle against war and fascism. Hmm, I'm gonna have to look that one up. Oh, it has a plate in here. I'll have to look that up. Plate nine. I don't think I've seen that. Let me just take a peek at it. Is that back here in these pictures? Plate nine. It's funny how numbered not really in order. Now they are. I remember seeing this. I was studying it in some other way, though. Huh. Struggle Against War and Fascism, 1934. And the painters, the muralists, are standing in front. It's huge. Philip is on the left. Reuben is standing in front of their finished fresco with a poet friend, Jules Langsner. In Maximilian's Summer Palace, Morelia, Mexico. The photograph illustrated an article in Time. Hmm. I have to look that up. It's called The Struggle Against War and Fascism. Because I want to. This is a black and white photograph. It's really quite interesting. It's. Um, 
just say I don't know that I want to really describe it. Well, yeah, it's got figures all on in it and it looks like uh, crosses, females wrapped up and it looks like on a cross, but there's it's very surrealish kind of in a way. There's even somebody carrying a it looks like a plank or a cross and then there's the guy has one of those hoods on that it looks like Ku Klux Klan. The last time I saw um, Gustin's work it's not too long ago. Where was I? Oh, my memory's shot. But anyway, basically, when I saw and read and heard about, I think it was at the MoMA, his um, what was behind those images, it's pretty interesting. I'm not going to go into it right this moment. I'm getting sleepy and I'm trying to figure out where to stop. This is at the end of that page. Let's see how many more pages there are real quickly. There's three more pages. I think I'll finish. I'll finish on the next section. <laughs> I was definitely very sleepy. I was just listening to the end of my cast to know where to start again because last night I fell asleep right after I said I was going to finish it up and do it on the next section. And wow, I listened to the last maybe 10 minutes of it and it was just like, are you kidding me? That's the worst reading ever. So I apologize for that, but I'm not going to redo it. Um, I'm going to finish up this chapter and and add it to this segment, add it to this cast, and post it. And then I'm going to read, start reading chapter two. The book is due coming up pretty soon, and I've had it several weeks, and I can't believe I'm just now getting to finishing it up. So, starting and finishing it, basically. It took me a while of carrying it around for a few weeks, <laughs> almost the whole time I had it, to decide I was going to actually read this book f uh, from cover to cover. Yes, Maggie, you always have to interject into my casts. So, um, I'm sorry again, and here are the last few pages. I'm doing it a little earlier in my evening tonight, so it's so I'm not cranky and tired like I was before. I was like wide awake. I think I was reading that at 1:30 in the morning last night, and I decided that I wanted to read it and I wanted to get it into the cast, and so I was going to read it in hope in hopes that it would make me sleepy, and it sure as heck did. So. Here we go with the last few pages. So we have just finished with um, the huge 40 foot high mural depicting the struggle 
Against War and Fascism on Plate 9. When my father and Kaddish returned to Los Angeles, Time magazine ran an article characterizing them as parlor pinks and describing their monumental frescoed figures of the medieval and modern inquisitions. Rising through a trap door, this is a quote from uh, the article, I suppose. Let me just see. It's, quote, Rising through a trap door are two hooded figures representing the Ku Klux Klan and Nazism. In the extreme right, communists with sickle and hammer are rushing to the rescue. Crowed patron discoverer David Alfaro Sequeiros last week says, It is my honest belief that Goldstein and Kaddish are the most promising young painters in either the United States or Mexico, end quote. One day at the Stanley Rose bookstore, Herman Cherry received a letter from Panama from someone he didn't know named Musa McKim. In the letter, she explained that she had attended Otis Art Institute and asked for Philip Goldstein's address. I gave the letter to Phil, Cherry says, and he must have gotten in touch with her because it wasn't long after that she came to live with him. My mother had grown tired of art school herself and returned to Panama to stay with her parents. Engaged for a time to an American tobacco merchant, she had become restless. She longed to study in Paris, but her father opposed it. She began thinking of the intense young painter she had met at Otis, wondering what had happened to him. I simply couldn't get Philip out of my mind, my mother says. She had just returned from a visit to the San, Pla- San Blas or San Bla Islands with her father, who was making an anthropological study of the Kuna Indian Indians there. Her letter to Philip was uncharacteristically daring. With it, she sent two photos taken by her father, one of her paddling a canoe with a Kuno Indian woman beside her, which is on plate A, eight. The other of her lying in her bunk on the Imco. I was terribly seasick, she tells me. Perhaps this explains her languorous loveliness in the snapshot. My father wrote back immediately, enclosing photographs of his adventure, pictures of the murals in Mexico, and inviting her to come and live with him in Los Angeles. And she went. I can still see Philip standing there in Hollywood when he came to meet me, she says. So tall, so beautiful, with that wonderful look of his. At 21, my father began applying for and winning commissions for mural projects under Roosevelt's New Deal. The first, the first, also with Reuben Kaddish, or Kaddish, I don't know how you say his name, I should have looked that up, uh, was in Duarte, California at the City of Hope Medical Center, a tuberculosis sanatorium run by the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. A cousin of Reuben Kaddish has helped them get this job. We bypassed the local government, art bureaucrats. See, it always happens this way. It's who you know. We bypassed the local government, art bureaucrats, mostly because they were afraid to take on the union. Kaddish remembers, or Kaddish. You know what? I'm going to pause for... Oh, I can't pause on this. I don't know. Okay.
Otherwise, he believes neither Phil nor I would have ever gotten a jo- another job in L.A. My mother came along and lived, lived with Philip in the cramped little house he and Kadish had, re- had rented. What she remembers of that mural project, she tells me, is mixing the plaster. The subject was lighter in tone, my, mother, my father wrote in one of his chronologies, depicting birth, youth, middle age, and death. Perhaps beside the Moralia mural, it does seem less weighty, but one could hardly call it light in tone. Some 35 nude and partially draped figures gesture and pose in a highly symbolic and elaborate spatial frame. Complex and ambitious, it clearly derives from Italian Renaissance fresco. And you'll see it in the picture here that I'll post, but that is pretty good description of it. The notion of government-sponsored works, excuse me, the notion of government-sponsored work for artists was becoming established, particularly in New York. Public buildings all over the United States were to be decorated with works of art celebrating fundamental American values. Hell, they've got to eat just like any other people, said Harry Hopkins, FDR's emergency relief administrator, defending a new program that would permit artists and writers to use their unique skills. We need another program like this, believe me. The Civil Works Administration, which funded the Public Works of Art Project, was succeeded in 1934 by the Section of Fine Arts of Treasury, department and later by other agencies which became the fine arts project all of these commissions later referred to under the later referred to under the general rubric of works project administration or wpa or quote unquote the project for the next 8 years my father's income came almost exclusively from mural commissions and even even the photographer dorothea lang was hired under that program a lot of people that made it, uh, or that are looked at, looked back on now, during that time period, were hired under that program. During the winter of 1935 and 1936, at the urging of his high school friend Jackson Pollock, who had gone east in 1930 to study with Thomas Hart Benton, but came back to L.A. for frequent visits, my father decided to make the move to New York City. The WPA was just getting started there, and plenty of work would be available. There were great collections to see, artists to meet. New York was already the center of American art. As if to underscore this move, to separate his life before from whatever would be after, my father, in 1935, when he was 22, started using the name Gustin and spelled his name, his first name, with one L. Though his complete motives are unclear, the changing of his name apparently began with a desire to impress my mother's parents. Later, deeply ashamed of his act, my father concealed his name change and asked his biographer, Dora Dora Ashton, to avoid any reference to it in her book. He even went so far as to repaint the signatures on some of his early paintings. How interesting. I didn't know about this change of name until I was in college. More shocked by his concealment than I was by the change itself, I remember turning 
the family name over on my tongue when I first found out what it was, Goldstein. I had a flash, a full textured feeling of belonging to something, to someone, a tradition. Goldstein was a name that was connected with other people, not a name to set a person apart, as Gustin was. It was a common enough name, and I was tired after a childhood of school teasings of my two unusual names. Many of his generation had changed their names. I knew that. But had my parents really been that afraid of anti-Semitism? Was my father, heroic figure that he was to me then, in some way ashamed of being Jewish? Had he wanted that badly to leave his family behind? Or was he after something else entirely, a sort of assumed a sort of assumed identity, like the masked children in his paintings of the 40s. All of the possible explanations were disturbing. While I became more curious about my father's past, I was still afraid to ask. Something, something, some buried unhappiness I sensed in him, warned me as it always had, not to show my curiosity. Now, 25 years later, I am still mystified as I sit in my cousin Fan's sunny kitchen in Los Angeles, drinking coffee and poring over old family photographs. A large painting from 1947 hangs in the place of honor in the living room. Five of my father's early watercolors decorate the bedroom and hall. In one of them, a still life of fruits on a table. Excuse me. In one of them, a still life of fruits on a tabletop, a blackbird is perched on a curtain, about to fly out the open window, with a cluster of cherries in his beak. It is dated 1935, the year that Philip was about to make his own escape. Fan's face is still girlish and soft at 73. She is the age my father would have been had he lived. There were They were born a month apart. She... Oh, they were born a, month, born a month apart, she tells me. Looking at her eyes moisten as she talks about Philip, hearing the obvious love in her voice, I am sad that I waited so long to visit, and that the others, his brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles, and Babu, the name they called Rachel, my grandmother, are all gone now too, and I will never know them. I find myself thinking... I find myself sinking into a cozy dream of what it would have been like belonging to a big family, the Goldsteins. And yet a distance separates us still. My father's reticence about his family, that deep sense of privacy my father, uh, excuse me, that deep sense of privacy my parents shared is in me too. All the years I haven't known the all the years I haven't known these people prevail and bring me back to the task at hand. I am researching a book, I remind myself. It's foolish, sentimental, to feel more than this simple connection. For my father, though, the connection was anything but simple. How could it have been otherwise? Filled with obligation and ambivalent love and what could have what could only have been an enormous grief, he must have longed to start fresh to create a new life for himself. But this is only a guess, 
a daughter's speculation. My own life was hardly equipped to was my own life has hardly equipped me to understand. My father's death when I was 37 was the fir- first real loss of my life. Can I even ima- can I even begin to know what it was like for him to lose so much so early or to fashion for these losses a life of such promise and focus? Or to free himself from his past or seem to so thoroughly when I myself am so bound to mine? When I look at my father, I think that I can now see my grandmother's resilience, my grandfather's despair. And in this duality, the, the riddle of, of the man exposed. For one moment, this seems to explain everything. In the next, nothing. Any such simple knowledge is hopelessly reductive. We are more than the joining of our parents, after all. It is not, I remind myself, the thing that happens to us. Excuse me. It is not, I remind myself, the things that happen to us, but the meaning we bring to them that matters, after all. Events suggest, but they do not explain. I press on with my questions. With some apprehension, I ask my cousin how the family reacted when they found out that my father had changed his name. But I have forgotten that these were the children of immigrants, pragmatic, eager for chances, for a new beginning. Not like me and the next generation longing for origins. My father and his brothers and sisters were the offspring of people who left their language, their homeland, everything. In the face of that, what was a name? Besides, this is California, Hollywood dreamland. I had, I have not reckoned with my cousin's deep pleasure at my father's success, felt no less keenly for all the coastal distance. Success is the great justifier. I can decipher that from the extent of her display, gust in paintings, gust in books, gust in stories. She has kept the letters, all the cards sent on birthdays. How many friends over the years have been shown these artifacts and what and with what swelling of pride. Oh yes, I understand this sort of display only too well, how it seems to compensate, to fill in the absences. So what was the family's reaction when Philip changed his name? None whatsoever, Fan says. None. We felt as an artist that 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 was what he needed to do. Nobody questioned it. When you get into that business, well, it's like show business, you know. I have never been able to escape my family, my father wrote in an unpublished autobiographical piece in 1978, two years before his death. As a boy, I would hide in the closet when the older, bo- older brothers and sisters came with their families to Mama's apartment for the Sunday afternoon dinner visit. Dinner visit. I felt safe. Hearing their talk about illnesses, marriages, and the problems of making a living, I felt my remoteness in the closet with the single light bulb. I read and drew in this private box. Some Sundays I even painted. I had given my dear mama passionate instructions to lie. Where's Philip? I could hear them ask. Oh, he is away with friends, she would manage in a trembling voice. It was so good to be away. 
I was happy in my sanctuary. When I was 17, I left home and went to the other side of the continent. After a lifetime, I still have never been able to escape my family. It is true that I paint now in, lar in a larger closet, much, much larger, with many lights. Yet nothing has changed in all this time. It is still a struggle to be hidden and feel strange, my favorite mood. Or to put it more precisely, to live my life as a stranger or to be vacuumed up by family. Such a choice, to breathe or not to breathe. So it is true that nothing changes, friends, artists, poets, critics, and intellectuals, professors in universities. They are still the family coming for Mama's Sunday afternoon chicken dinner, art dealers and museum directors, collectors of art, the world I have lived in for 50 years remains a family. Now it is I who must lie and say that I am away in order to hide. The talk is still about making a living, how to live, what to do. Do not think, do not think I pride myself that I have not been infected. All that I can truly say is that I am still struggling, like a drowning man, to be unrecognizable unknowable to myself, the stranger. There has been only one gain since the innocent boy cl boyhood closet. Now I know that it is a losing contest. As Kafka said, or Kafka, as Kafka says, bet on the world. And that's the end of chapter one. And we are going to be moving on to chapter two and be the next cast. And it's entitled, Women Are Learners. P.S. The image is only a partial detail of the whole painting I couldn't get it to come into the whole into anchors software to show the whole thing I even tried to reduce the size of the painting but anyway if you look it up it's called the struggle with war and fascism by Philip Guston just look that up or google it if you want to see the whole thing So we have just finished with um, the huge 40-foot-high mural depicting the struggle against war and fascism on Plate 9. When my father and Kaddish returned to Los Angeles, Time magazine ran an article characterizing them as parlor pinks and describing their monumental frescoed figures of the medieval and modern inquisitions. Rising through a trapdoor, this is a quote from uh, the article, I suppose. Let me just see. It's, quote, Rising through a trapdoor are two hooded figures representing the Ku Klux Klan and Nazism. In the extreme right, communists with sickle and hammer are rushing to the rescue. Crowed, patron, discoverer, 
David Alfaro Sequeiros last week says, It is my honest belief that Goldstein and Kaddish are the most promising young painters in either the United States or Mexico, end quote. One day at the Stanley Rose bookstore, Herman Cherry received a letter from Panama from someone he didn't know named Musa McKim. In the letter, she explained that she had attended Otis Art Institute and asked for Philip Goldstein's address. I gave the letter to Phil, Cherry says, and he must have gotten in touch with her because it wasn't long after that she came to live with him. My mother had grown tired of art school herself and returned to Panama to stay with her parents. Engaged for a time to an American tobacco merchant, she had become restless. She longed to study in Paris, but her father opposed it. She began thinking of the intense young painter she had met at Otis, wondering what had happened to him. I simply couldn't get Philip out of my mind, my mother says. She had just returned from a visit to the San, Pla- San Blas or San Bla Islands with her father, who was making an anthropological study of the Kuna Indian Indians there. Her letter to Philip was uncharacteristically daring. With it, she sent two photos taken by her father, one of her paddling a canoe with a Kuna Indian woman beside her, which is on plate A, eight. The other of her lying in her bunk on the Imco. I was terribly seasick, she tells me. Perhaps this explains her languorous loveliness in the snapshot. My father wrote back immediately, enclosing photographs of his adventure, pictures of the murals in Mexico, and inviting her to come and live with him in Los Angeles. And she went. I can still see Philip standing there in Hollywood when he came to meet me, she says. So tall, so beautiful, with that wonderful look of his. At 21, my father began applying for and winning commissions for mural projects under Roosevelt's New Deal. The first, the first also with Reuben Kaddish, or Kaddish, I don't know how you say his name, I should have looked that up, uh, was in Duarte, California at the City of Hope Medical Center, a tuberculosis sanatorium run by the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. A cousin of Reuben Kaddish has helped them get this job. We bypass the local government, art bureaucrats. See, it always happens this way, it's who you know. We bypassed the local government, art bureaucrats, mostly because they were afraid to take on the union. Kaddish remembers, or Kaddish. You know what, I'm going to pause for, oh, I can't pause on this. I don't know. Okay. Otherwise, he believes neither Phil nor I would have ever gotten a job, another job in L.A. My mother came along and lived, lived with Philip in the cramped little house he and Kadish had, re- had rented. What she remembers of that mural project, she tells me, is mixing the plaster. The subject was lighter in tone, my, mother, my father wrote in one of his chronologies, depicting birth, youth, middle age, and death. Perhaps beside the Moralia mural, it does seem less weighty, but one could hardly call it light in tone. 
Some 35 nude and partially draped figures gesture and pose in a highly symbolic and elaborate spatial frame. Complex and ambitious, it clearly derives from Italian Renaissance fresco. And you'll see it in the picture here that I'll post, but that is a pretty good description of it. The notion of government-sponsored works, excuse me, the notion of government-sponsored work for artists was becoming established, particularly in New York. Public buildings all over the United States were to be decorated with works of art celebrating fundamental American values. Hell, they've got to eat just like any other people, said Harry Hopkins, FDR's emergency relief administrator, defending a new program that would permit artists and writers to use their unique skills. We need another program like this, believe me. The Civil Works Administration, which funded the Public Works of Art Project was succeeded in 1934 by the Section of Fine Arts of Treasury Department and later by other agencies, which became the Fine Arts Project. All of these commissions later referred to under the later referred to under the general rubric of Works Project Administration or WPA, or quote unquote the project. For the next eight years, my father's income came almost exclusively from mural commissions. And even, even the photographer Dorothea Lang was hired under that program. A lot of people that made it, uh, that are looked, at, looked back on now during that time period were hired under that program. During the winter of 1935 and 1936, at the urging of his high school friend, Jackson Pollock, who had gone east in 1930 to study with Thomas Hart Benton, but came back to L.A. for frequent visits, my father decided to make the move to New York City. The WPA was just getting started there, and plenty of work would be available. There were great collections to see, artists to meet. New York was already the center of American art. As if to underscore this move, to separate his life before from whatever would be after, my father, in 1935, when he was 22, started using the name Gustin and spelled his name, his first name, with one L. Though his complete motives are unclear, the changing of his name apparently began with a desire to impress my mother's parents. Later... Deeply ashamed of his act, my father concealed his name change and asked his biographer, Doria, Dora, Dora Ashton, to avoid any reference to it in her book. He even went so far as to repaint the signatures on some of his early paintings. How interesting. I didn't know about this change of name until I was in college. More shocked by his concealment than I was by the change itself, I remember turning the family name over on my tongue when I first found out what it was, Goldstein. I had a flash, a full textured feeling of belonging to something, to someone, a tradition. Goldstein was a name that was connected with other people, not a name to set a person apart, as Gustin was. It was a common enough name, and I was tired after a childhood of school teasings of my two unusual names. Many of his generation had changed their names. I knew that. 
But had my parents really been that afraid of anti-Semitism? Was my father, heroic figure that he was to me then, in some way ashamed of being Jewish? Had he wanted that badly to leave his family behind? Or was he after something else entirely, a sort of assumed a sort of assumed identity, like the masked children in his paintings of the forties. All of the possible explanations were disturbing. While I became more curious about my father's past, I was still afraid to ask. Something, something, some buried unhappiness I sensed in him warned me as it always had not to show my curiosity. Now, 25 years later, I am still mystified as I sit in my cousin Fan's sunny kitchen in Los Angeles, drinking coffee and poring over old family photographs. A large painting from 1947 hangs in the place of honor in the living room. Five of my father's early watercolors decorate the bedroom and hall. In one of them, a still life of fruits on a table. Excuse me. In one of them, a still life of fruits on a tabletop, a blackbird is perched on a curtain, about to fly out the open window, with a cluster of cherries in his beak. It is dated 1935, the year that Philip was about to make his own escape. Fan's face is still girlish and soft at 73. She is the age my father would have been had he lived. There were, they were born a month apart. She, oh, they were born a, month, born a month apart, she tells me. Looking at her eyes moisten as she talks about Philip, hearing the obvious love in her voice, I am sad that I waited so long to visit, and that the others, his brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles, and Babu, the name they called Rachel, my grandmother, are all gone now too, and I will never know them. I find myself thinking, I find myself sinking into a cozy dream of what it would have been like belonging to a big family, the Goldsteins. And yet a distance separates us still. My father's reticence about his family, that deep sense of privacy my father, uh, excuse me, that deep sense of privacy my parents shared is in me too. All the years I haven't known the all the years I haven't known these people prevail and bring me back to the task at hand. I am researching a book, I remind myself. It's foolish, sentimental, to feel more than this simple connection. For my father, though, the connection was anything but simple. How could it have been otherwise? Filled with obligation and ambivalent love and what could have what could only have been an enormous grief, he must have longed to start fresh to create a new life for himself. But this is only a guess, a daughter's speculation. My own life was hardly equipped to, was my own life has hardly equipped me to understand. My father's death when I was 37 was the fir first real loss of my life. Can I, even can I even begin to know what it was like for him to lose so much, so early, or to fashion for these losses a life of such promise and focus? Or to free himself from his past, or seem to, so thoroughly, when I myself am so bound to mine? 
When I look at my father, I think that I can now see my grandmother's resilience, my grandfather's despair. And in this duality, the, the riddle of, of the man exposed. For one moment, this seems to explain everything. In the next, nothing. Any such simple knowledge is hopelessly reductive. We are more than the joining of our parents, after all. It is not, I remind myself, the thing that happens to us. Excuse me. It is not, I remind myself, the things that happen to us, but the meaning we bring to them that matters, after all. Events suggest, but they do not explain. I press on with my questions. With some apprehension, I ask my cousin how the family reacted when they found out that my father had changed his name. But I have forgotten that these were the children of immigrants, pragmatic, eager for chances, for a new beginning. Not like me and the next generation longing for origins. My father and his brothers and sisters were the offspring of people who left their language, their homeland, everything. In the face of that, what was a name? Besides, this is California, Hollywood dreamland. I I have not reckoned with my cousin's deep pleasure at my father's success, felt no less keenly for all the coastal distance. Success is the great justifier. I can decipher that from the extent of her display, gust in paintings, gust in books, gust in stories. She has kept the letters, all the cards sent on birthdays, how many friends over the years have been shown these artifacts, and what and with what swelling of pride. Oh yes, I understand this sort of display only too well, how it seems to compensate, to fill in the absences. So what was the family's reaction when Philip changed his name? None whatsoever, Fan says, none. We felt as an artist that 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 was what he needed to do. Nobody questioned it. When you get into that business, well, it's like show business, you know. I have never been able to escape my family, my father wrote in an unpublished autobiographical piece in 1978, two years before his death. As a boy, I would hide in the closet when the older older brothers and sisters came with their families to Mama's apartment for the Sunday afternoon dinner dinner visit. I felt safe. Hearing their talk about illnesses, marriages, and the problems of making a living, I felt my remoteness in the closet with the single light bulb. I read and drew in this private box. Some Sundays I even painted. I had given my dear mama passionate instructions to lie. Where's Philip? I could hear them ask. Oh, he is away with friends, she would manage in a trembling voice. It was so good to be away. I was happy in my sanctuary. When I was 17, I left home and went to the other side of the continent. After a lifetime, I still have never been able to escape my family. It is true that I paint now in in a larger closet, much, much larger, with many lights. Yet nothing has changed in all this time. It is still a struggle to be hidden and feel strange, my favorite mood. Or to put it more precisely, to live my life as a stranger, or to be vacuumed up 
by family. Such a choice to breathe or not to breathe. So it is true that nothing changes. Friends, artists, poets, critics, and intellectuals, professors in universities, they are still the family coming for Mama's Sunday afternoon chicken dinner, art dealers and museum directors, collectors of art. The world I have lived in for 50 years remains a family. Now it is I who must lie and say that I am away in order to hide. The talk is still about making a living, how to live, what to do. Do not think, do not think I pride myself that I have not been infected. All that I can truly say is that I am still struggling, like a drowning man, to be unrecognizable, unknowable to myself, the stranger. There has been only one gain since the innocent boy cl boyhood closet. Now I know that it is a losing contest. As Kafka said, or Kafka, as Kafka says, bet on the world. And that's the end of chapter one. And we are going to be moving on to chapter two. It'll be the next cast. And it's entitled, Women Are Learners. <laughs>